you know they ask by what means of execution you know you have to choose how do you choose that how do you choose with two evils you know both ways that the state presented you know to me are barbaric you know and so how do you choose from one evil to the next I mean the lesser evil, they're still both evil and barbaric, you know? That was the voice of death row inmate Richard Moore. If the South Carolina Supreme Court allows the state to use the firing squad as a means for execution, Moore is likely the first man scheduled to die. Investigative reporter Jennifer Barry Hawes got a chance to interview Moore about his time on death row and his potential execution date. Today, she joins us on Understand South Carolina to discuss the interview and Moore's case. I'm Eric Russell, and this is Understand South Carolina. For starters, who is Richard Moore, and how did he become the first person that's set to be executed by use of the firing squad? So Richard Moore um, was living in Spartanburg County back in 1999 when he went into a convenience store called Nikki's Speedy Mart. Uh, He picked up a couple cans of beer and went to the checkout counter, and uh, behind the counter was a man named James Mahoney, uh, who was um, a three-year employee of the convenience store. And something in those moments occurred um, when Mr. Mahoney drew a firearm. They wrestled over the firearm. Richard Moore uh, got it. And then Mr. Mahoney got another firearm, and while it's unclear exactly what happened, the two men uh, shot each other. Mr. Mahoney died, and Richard Moore uh, went over his body to steal a bag of money and then fled the store. He was later charged uh, with murder, convicted, and sentenced to death in 2001. With that happening so long ago, what have been some of the holdups that have led to us being here now so many years later with him potentially facing another execution date? Well, he went through the lengthy appeals process, which is normal for uh, anyone who receives a death sentence. Um, But then there was a a big barrier at the end of that journey, and that was that the state of South Carolina could no longer get one of the drugs necessary for the lethal injection uh, method of execution. And so that led to some repeated delays, Eventually, the General Assembly um, passed uh, some revisions to the execution statute, which allowed for a firing squad. Uh, They set about creating some protocols for for this method. Uh, And in the meantime, several inmates, including Richard Moore, um, uh, sued, uh, saying that the firing squad was unconstitutional. Uh, That went before a circuit court judge who Uh, agreed, and that sent it up to the state Supreme Court, where it is now. Uh, The state Supreme Court will hear arguments in January, uh, so we may have some resolution to that question. Um, But it's been an ongoing saga in the state uh, for uh, all three dozen of the people on death row uh, because lethal injection is, um, while it's legally uh, one of the options, it's not practically one of the options because the state can't get all of the Uh, the drugs, and it needs to carry one out. So they haven't carried out an execution here since 2011. And obviously a lot has changed over time, but what was that initial trial like where he got convicted even before all of those appeals? So for some context, uh, Richard Moore 
um, had a crack cocaine addiction, and he had a, a pretty sizable criminal record going into his trial. Um, when he got to trial in 2001, it was a month after the September 11th terrorist attacks. It was really just at the crescendo of the war on drugs. Uh, Spartanburg County in particular was pretty notorious for seeking the death penalty. At the state and local level, law enforcement targeted crack users more so than anything else because it was easy pickings. We could, they could fill up the jails and the prisons, you know, and say that they're doing a great job and tell the public that they're doing a great job by the number of arrests they're making with this crack. You know, I'm not blaming them because it was it's, it's always the individual's fault who continues to use drugs and not try to get himself off. But it's in a power, it's a powerful addiction, and you think you have control of it when you don't. You can't control it; it controls you. So he goes into a courtroom in this context, and the jury that's selected. Uh, does not have a single black member, and Richard Moore is African-American. Uh, he's facing an all-white jury with one Hispanic member. The judge is white. The attorneys are all white. Uh, and he, he talks, interestingly, about that power dynamic and what it was like uh, feeling that his, uh, you know, his destiny at that point was in the hands of powerful white people, um, including his attorneys, who he did not feel like cared strongly about him or that's what he voiced to me. Um, so he goes through this trial and it does not take the jury long at all to convict him. Uh, the prosecutor in that case was Trey Gowdy. He was a newly elected solicitor. Of course, um, he went on to become U.S. congressman. He headed the Benghazi investigation. He's you know, very well known in the state and is uh, well respected for his uh, trial skills. Um, so Richard Moore goes through this trial, he's quickly convicted, and in the penalty phase, uh, his attorneys present only two people on his behalf to present mitigating evidence, uh, and again, the, the, the jury quickly uh, gives him a death sentence. Uh, and from there, he goes on to death row um, back in 2001, so, you know, a good two decades ago now. And when speaking with him, were you able to get a sense of what life has been like for him on death row and how it may have changed over time and any trials and tribulations uh, associated with it. So he gets to death row, uh, which at the time was housed at Lieber uh, Correctional Institution, and he sees around him men who he feels uh, have committed much more severe, uh, more heinous crimes than his. Um, but he struggles for a long time with... Um, great feelings of remorse uh, for Mr. Mahoney's death, remorse for the fact that uh, his own children would grow up without him, uh, remorse for just everything that had gotten him to this point. I guess I would end up saying again, you know, that, you know, my remorse uh, of taking Mr. Mahoney's life, uh, the trouble and anguish and pain I've caused his family, my family as well, uh, the fact that uh, now you know, I've had to, my children had to grow up without me. Each family, you know, each family lost. Yes, I'm still breathing at this time, but, you know, my family lost as well. It's not to the extent of death, true, 
and I am truly sorry uh, for taking Mr. Mahoney's life. And I, I wish it had never happened, you know. Uh, and again, you know, I hope that the family find it in their heart, you know, to forgive me. Um, but over time, he he managed to find ways to remain an active parent. Uh, he was determined that he wanted to forage a good relationship with his children. He had two biological children and a stepson. He obviously loved them very much. Um, and so he sets about trying to do this as best he can and uh, at the same time building some relationships with some of the other prisoners there, um, you know, basically leading the best life that he can um, within the context of the situation. One thing he described as being particularly difficult was the times when he would receive an execution date. It was, it's torture. So the last 30, when I received an execution date, one says these are the last 30 days of my life. Now each time I've had that happen, those were the worst days of the entire, of my entire incarceration over 20 plus years. Those last 30 days are the most tiring, nerve-shattering, miserable days of your entire incarceration. Uh, and that has happened to him twice now. Um, and of course, he's potentially facing another execution date if the Supreme Court overturns the circuit judge's ruling. Uh, so the circuit judge found that the firing squad and, and uh, electrocution are unconstitutional, and then that sent the question to the state Supreme Court where it is now. Uh, so he could... Uh, after the January arguments, if when the court rules, he could be facing another execution date fairly soon. With that, you spoke about him being an active parent still and being around his family. What did he say kind of about that aspect? I think it was a real motivator for him to uh, to do well as possible. He talked about how he would call his daughter and his sons uh, on Sundays, and they established this routine where he would call them and um, they would send each other letters. He likes to draw, and his daughter really likes word puzzles. So she described how they'd make each other these homemade word searches, and she'd send him um, puzzles from her word puzzle books, which she really loved. Um, he has a, a a big collection of letters that they've written him over the years that he's kept. Mm -hmm. Pictures of birds and cookies and. Oh my goodness, stars, shooting stars, and to daddy, from daddy's baby girl. Uh, oh my goodness, there's tissues. Of, oh, she wrote something. Here's a letter she wrote on the back. Dear daddy, I'm about to write you a song because I love you so much. Here's the song my daughter wrote. I love you so much. I just want to touch you and hug you so much like i have when you was home just come home to me and i will love you like i never had before and she has these little hearts drawn there i love you so much daddy please come home oh my goodness and his daughter uh, on the other end described having a big tote of all of the cards and letters he had written and pictures he'd sent uh, you know, he'd help her with her homework. They described uh, helping each other to learn some Spanish. 
Uh, things that sounded remarkably normal for the very abnormal situation. Um, his daughter told me that, um, you know, for many years it felt remarkably normal uh, as much as you could for the situation because he was so active in trying to keep in touch with her and know what was going on with her, you know, from her report cards uh, to you know, what classes she was taking. Uh, it sounds like he did a pretty remarkable job of staying in touch, and I think that kept him uh, going in a positive direction and obviously provided his children someone, you know, in that father role. You touched a bit on his thoughts about what happened and his feelings for the Mahoney family. What was kind of the sense you got of his reflection on that over the years? He described a tremendous amount of regret. Um, he said that he really would like to express his regret to Mr. Mahoney's family. Uh, he welcomed them to uh, reach out to him if there was anything they wanted to say to him. Uh, he said that he would like to tell them directly that he, he seeks their forgiveness. Um, he talked a lot about just the regret for Mr. Mahoney's family losing him and everything that those moments cost both of their families um, quite a lot. And so there are still days when, you know, you think about it and you regret what happened, but at the same time, you can't stay there. And so once I was able to learn how to forgive myself, I learned how to meditate, you know, um, and just understand that this is a life journey and all of our journeys have different paths. And I hate that the path that me and Mr. Mahoney's path collided as it did and then he lost his life and I lost the life I knew. Uh, the opportunity to live a better life, both of us lost that, you know, and, you know, and, and I can't bring that back, but again, you know, he's not forgotten. Did you get the sense that there was a level of hopefulness from Mr. Moore about the outcome from the Supreme Court? I'm not sure I would say it was hopefulness as much as that he expressed it being out of his hands, that he felt he had done as much as he could do. He had tried to be the best father that he could. He had tried to be the best inmate that he could. He had tried to thank all of his supporters. He has a pretty broad uh, tribe of people around him. Um, so it was more that he expressed that it was out of his hands. He, he's a man with a Christian faith, and he talked about how it was in God's hands now, uh, and that he felt pretty comfortable with the fact that he had done what he could to um, live his life as best as possible after the shooting. So I, I'm not sure I would say it was hopeful as much as that he felt it was out of his hands at this point and pretty um, comfortable with the fact that he had tried to live his life as well as possible while in prison. If the court steps in, then fine. But if the court doesn't step in, then they're going to... Uh, the staff here will put everyone in their rooms. They tell everyone they have to go to their rooms. And then they will come to my room and put me in handcuffs and leg shackles and escort me to the back offices where there is a team of seven different people dealing with the Department of Corrections, representing the Department of Corrections at the state. And there, they will read you a death warrant. 
that's the beginning of it. Once they read you that death warrant, you know, they'll say, here's the date and sign these papers. They'll give you that warrant. And from that day forth, uh, they're asking you at any given day after that, during the weeks to follow, the four weeks that follow, they're asking you, what do you want to do with your personal property? Who do you want? You can only have two visitors that can come and be with you if you are executed. Um, you can have uh, someone from clergy, your attorney, or a family member that can be with you and can witness your execution. They're asking you your last meal. Uh, they're asking you, what do you want done with your body? Things of that nature. Those things you have to answer. You know, that's that can be a lot for someone that, you know, that I don't want to say mentally strong, but for someone who, that can be overwhelming. Well, thanks for joining us, Jen. Um, look forward to reading more about the, the situation as it continues on and seeing where it goes from here. Well, great. Thank you for having me. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with a different news story from our state.